All right, Romans chapter 8. Let's jump in together. Romans 8, we're going to read starting in verse 29, and we're going to conclude Romans 8 after being in it for four weeks. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. Let's go home. This year, I got to go to my first NFL game ever. I uh, went to go see uh, Dim Bengals. And uh, before we went, I uh, uh, went with Scott, who's up there running some tech stuff, and he sent me the video of the chant. And he said, you got to know the chant before you go see a Bengals game. And I was like, oh, there's a chant. Okay. And, and so he sends me the chant, and, and uh, I had to learn it, and you guys know what the chant is, you know, who they think going to beat them Bengals? Nobody, except it's a lot louder than that in that stadium. And so I learned to chant, went, and uh, representing the Bengals, did the chant, did all of that, loved it. You know, who day, we've got a lot of orange in this room this morning. Who day, y'all excited about today? I told, I told Scott we'd be out by 3. <laughs> 2.30. This section of Romans is the who day section. All right? <laughs> Write that down. All right? Take that. You know, this is the who day section of Romans. All right? <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Ryan's losing his mind. <laughs> and the ultimate question is, <laughs> thank you. Ryan's uh, making me laugh. Paul asks four who questions in this section. He asks four who questions. Who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against us? Who can condemn us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? It is the who day section of Romans, and the resounding answer of who can do these things is... Y'all ain't going to forget this sermon. If you're like me, you have gone through seasons in your life 
where you have struggled with your salvation. You have struggled with whether or not you were really in. Uh, I used to lay in bed every night uh, praying the same prayer over and over again and say, God, if I, if I didn't mean it last night, I mean it tonight. If I didn't say the words right last night, let me say it. Let me try them a different way tonight. Making sure that, that I was forgiven and saved and all those things. And, and I struggled with knowing if I had done the right things and said the right words and meant it enough and had enough faith and, and really struggled through that. And so if you're here this morning, maybe you are like me and you have struggled with doubt. You have struggled with doubting if God exists maybe or maybe struggling with doubting uh, that you are his and you've had this insecurity around God's love for you in your life and you've had this fear that maybe his patience will run out on you. Maybe his love could run out. Maybe he will give up on you because it'll be the final straw and he'll be done with you. Because you've messed up one too many times. This morning, this passage might be for you if you've ever felt that way. Because it is a powerful reminder that nobody can separate us from the love of God. We look at this passage this morning, we're going to look at it under five headings. The song we just sang was pretty appropriate, because the five headings are how high, how long, how deep, how high, how wide, and how strong is the love of God. So first, how long is his love? How long is his love? And when we ask the question, how long is the love of God, we are asking the question, how long will it last? How long will it last in time? Is there a time limit on his love? Where did it begin and will it ever end? Look at verses 29 and 30 because I think they give us the answer. For those, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We talked about this section a little bit last week, and I told you that it is often referred to as the golden chain of redemption. The golden chain of redemption. Because here we have a timeline, links in a chain, a timeline of God's love and God's working salvation in our lives. We see here when God first began to love us, and we see how long his love will last. You see, like golden chains, it is unbreakable. And I want to focus really just on the ends of this chain, the beginning and the end. The first step, he says, is where he says that God foreknew us. What what does that mean? What does it mean that God foreknew you? Well, the word know in the Bible is often used a little differently than we use the word know. For example, in the Old Testament, you might remember reading, and Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Right? Right? The word know is used to describe more than simple knowledge. It is used to describe intimacy, love. There are a lot of examples of this, but it carries that effect, that, that idea of affection, love, and intimacy. So when we read that God foreknew us, it's the same idea about when David writes in the Psalms, when he says, when I was in my mother's womb, you knew me. You loved me. Before I was born, you loved me. It's more than he just knows something about you or just knows you, right? Because he knows everybody. That would not be anything interesting. That would not be anything to note because God knows everything. 
And so he's saying more than he just knows you, he's saying that he loves you. And so to foreknow you is that he loved you beforehand. What we see in this golden chain is that if you are in Christ, then you can know that before you were born, before time ever began, God knew you. And not just knew things about you, but he loved you from the very beginning. He loved you before the world began. He set his affection on you and loved you. Now, that's, if, if that's where the chain begins. Notice, notice where it ends. It starts that he loves us beforehand. He loves us before we were born. He loves us before the creation of the world. But then he, he goes through these things, right? He goes, we're predestined and called and justified, but then we're glorified. Glorification is the end of the story. It hasn't happened yet, right? At least, I don't think anybody's been glorified. But that is a, there's a time coming. That was really country sounding. There is a time coming in the future when you will be made perfect. When you will have a resurrected body. When heaven and earth become the same thing. And you are resurrected like Jesus made perfect to live forever. That's glorification. That hasn't come yet. And so he's going to love us still then. His love and redemption began long before us. And it's going to continue on past us now and on into eternity in the future. And so how long is the love of God for his children? It has a beginning long, long ago, and it has no end. It goes on forever. God's love for you extends from eternity past into eternity future. God's love extends in eternity past and eternity future. So his love is long. The next question is, how deep is his love? How deep is his love? Verse 31 to 32, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If we were to say someone's love was shallow, right? we said this person has a shallow love, we would mean by that that they would not do much for us. They would not sacrifice much for us. For us, they would not put up with much or suffer much in toward us. You know, I love a lot of people, but there is a limit on the things that I would do for them. Right there, I might love you, but there is a point to which the we're going to bottom out. Right there's a point which I'm going no further in the things I'm willing to sacrifice or do for you. My love has a bottom. Where does God's love bottom out? How deep is it? How far is he willing to go? How much is he willing to sacrifice or put up with or suffer for you, for us? But we know the answer. We know that his love knows no bottom. It knows no bounds. We know that it is of the deepest depths. Because God's love for us is while we were still sinners. He loved us while we were still sinners, and that caused him, as us being sinners, to sacrifice his son to a brutal death and execution, to going through a literal hell so that we might escape what we rightly deserved. And let me, I think this is kind of a helpful thing to think about. Jesus' death on the cross did not win or secure God's love for you. Sometimes I think we kind of think that way, that, oh, Jesus died on the cross, it made it to where God could love us. No, 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 no. It was his love before the cross, 
looking at you, his love for you, that motivated him to send his son to endure the cross. That's completely different. It wasn't like he couldn't stand you, and so he had to send Jesus to fix you. Then he could love you. But rather, it was his love that motivated and compelled him to send his son for you. You know, sometimes things happen, and without thinking, someone jumps in front of a bullet to save someone else. Sacrificing themselves to save someone else. You know, there's some people in my life that I wouldn't have to think about that for, right? Someone breaks into my house and starts shooting. I'm going to jump in front of the bullet to save my wife and children. And even if I had time to think about that, I'd still do it. But there's some of you, in the split second, I might jump in front of that bullet. But if I had time to think about it, I, I might not. All right? I might not. God had all of the time in the world to consider jumping in front of the bullet for you. He had an eternity. He had a long time. To know you, to know all the things in your life, to know all the ways you're going to screw up, and to contemplate and to consider and to ponder and to think about and to weigh whether or not you were worth sending his son to die and to go through hell to rescue you. It wasn't a split-second decision. He was able to think about it. And in the end, he determined that he loved you so much that it was worth going through. So how deep is the love of God for you? Is it not a bottomless pit? That there are no links that God would not go to rescue you. Which makes it all the more irrational for us when we think that God abandons us. When we think that God has forgotten us. When we think that God is not answering our prayers or giving us what we need. Like, like Paul writes, if God did not spare his son, how is he not going to give us all things? Right? Like every other gift that God could give you is less than the gift he's already given you. Right? He's given you the greatest thing in the world in his son. Everything else is significantly less of a gift to give. And so if he's already given us the greatest gift, how is he not also going to give us these other things? Why would God make this large investment in you by sending his son to go through hell for, to save you? Why would he make this large investment for you and then say, yeah, but that marriage you're in, you are on your own, buddy. Good luck. Oh, you need wisdom? Sorry, you better figure that out. Oh, you need to eat? Well, I saved you, so go fend for yourself. Why in the world would he do that? He's given us the greatest gift. He's made this huge investment. Why will he not also give us all things? God's love is a bottomless pit that we can never plumb in the depths, never reach the bottom. And he has given us his greatest prized possession. And, of course, he gives us everything else that we need. In giving his son, God shows that his love has no end. It has no bottom. God's love lasts forever. Its depths know no end, but while it goes all the way down, the next question is how high does his love reach? Verse 33 and 34. Who shall bring a, any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. There was big news this week, if you uh, watch the news. Uh, there was an announcement that a Supreme Court justice is soon going to be retiring. And that is big news because uh, a, a new justice will be nominated. 
uh, placed on the court. It's big news because the person that goes on that court, well, it'll have ramifications for decades as he helps make or he or she makes decisions and rulings for decades. It matters because when that court makes a decision, the decision is final. There is no higher court that one might appeal to, right? Because we see that, that appeal kind of stuff happen all the time in other courts, right? It happens all the time in the lower courts. One judge makes a ruling about a company that says this company's got to do X and such. And then a higher court uh, gets appealed to and they say, well, you don't have to do it. You actually have, you have 90 days to do that, to figure that out. And then uh, they appeal again and then another judge comes out and he says, well, actually, you don't have to do it at all. And they just keep appealing and goes to different judges and it keeps changing and it goes to higher judges and, 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 and all these kinds of things. And when we talk about trials being held up in court for years, that's very literal, because there's appeals and retrials, and, and it goes higher up and higher up. And if you work through all these courts, and if you're lucky and your case is big enough, and the Supreme Court decides that they want to hear the case, and they don't want to just send it back to a lower court, if all of that works out, the Supreme Court hears your case, whatever they rule, it is final. It is, it is law. It is done. No one else to appeal to. No one else to bring a ruling. It is done. When we read verses 33 and 34, this is legal language. Who can bring a charge against you, against us? Who can charge us with a crime? Who can charge us with a sin, with rebellion against God? Who can condemn us? Who can convict us? Well, on the one hand, anyone can bring a charge against you, right? Like people bring charges against us all the time. People, your friends, your, your enemies, your coworkers, your family, people can accuse you of all kinds of things that they can accuse you that you hurt them you hurt their feelings you lied to them you betrayed them whatever they, we, they people accuse us of things all the time satan can accuse us he's a called the accuser right he can charge us right he, he tells us all the things we're doing wrong he points out all these things in our lives all our faults all our errors and the problem with people uh, bringing charges against us, the problem with Satan bringing charges against us, is not that they're lying. It's not the problem. The problem isn't that they're making wild accusations that are untrue. The problem is that most of the time, people are telling the truth. That the, the enemies and powers of darkness are telling the truth about our crimes. The problem is they're true. The problem is we are actually guilty and have done these things. So why is Paul asking the question, who can bring a charge against us? Follow his argument. Who can bring a charge against us? Well, it's God who justifies, who makes righteous. But then he asks the question, so if God justifies, then who can condemn? Because Jesus died and was raised and is interceding for us. So then does that mean that the father is the judge and the son is the lawyer who is coming to argue our case of innocence before his father, the judge? No. That's not what that means. Because the best lawyer in the world could not argue our case successfully before an all-knowing judge. He could not argue successfully that we are innocent because the judge would clearly see we're guilty. Jesus is not coming to argue for our salvation. He is not trying to convince God that we're actually good, that we're actually worthy, that we're actually enough. He is not arguing for our salvation. He earns our salvation. Jesus' perfect life, his death, make him our substitute. He trades places with us. Jesus is not our lawyer arguing we are innocent. Jesus is our substitute. 
He's our substitute, which means God, the rightful judge, the only one who can bring real lasting charges against us, the only one who can actually condemn us, cannot. Because the charges and the condemnation and the sentencing has already been served and paid for by Jesus on the cross. God has justified us and given us a verdict of not guilty, no condemnation, because Jesus was condemned and sentenced in our stead. And there is now no one else to appeal that decision to. There is no higher court. Our case has gone before the highest court, not in the land, not in the world, but in all of the universe. And we have been found innocent because Jesus took our punishment in our place. So how high is the love of God for us? It goes to the highest courtroom and declares us innocent. So God's love lasts forever. Its depths know no end. It reaches to the highest courtroom. But then the question is, how wide is his love? And what we are asking here is just how wide, just how far does God's love go in my life? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Here is a list of all sorts of bad things that could happen to you. And what is really interesting about this list is these are all things that Paul, the author of this letter, has or will go through himself. So when he speaks to this issue, he speaks from experience. See, we are often tempted to believe this lie, that when bad things happen to us, when, when, when bad things happen, we feel like God has abandoned us. When trials, when evil, when things go wrong, we think that God has forsaken us. We think that maybe we finally got on his last nerve and he just wrote us off. And because of that, because he has allowed all these bad things to happen to us, God must not love us anymore. Do you not remember verse 28? Step the page a little bit. That if you belong to God, he is working all things for good. The verse doesn't say that he's working all good things for good, but all things for good. The amazing thing about this reality, that all your hurt, all your pain, all your trials, all the suffering in your life, he's saying it's not wasted. He's saying nothing is wasted. Rather, that God is using everything in your life for your good to transform you into something glorious and perfect and radiant like Jesus. Notice verse 37. This is fascinating. He says, knowing all of these things... All these bad things he just listed, famine, sword, nakedness, danger. And all of these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. But how can you be more than a conqueror? How How do you do more than just defeat the bad things? How do you do more than just end them and conquer them? John Piper says it this way. He says, a conqueror defeats his enemies. A conqueror nullifies or stops the purposes of his enemies. But one who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purpose. A conqueror strikes down his foe, but one who is more than a conqueror makes his foe his slave. 
Think about it this way. The natural way we think about famine and distress and persecution and danger and all these bad things, we see them as the enemy, as things that want to hurt us and destroy us. But Paul is saying that God doesn't just defeat our enemies for us. He's not just wiping them away. Instead, he's making them our servants. He's making them our servants. These bad things, he's making them serve our, his purpose in our life. Because through these things that want to destroy you, God is not going to let them destroy you. Instead, he is going to make them serve you to make you stronger, to make you more faithful, to make you kinder, to make you gentler, to make you more precious, to make you more beautiful, to make you more like Jesus. God not only delivers us from our suffering, he makes our pain and suffering serve his purpose in our life. How wide is the love of God? It is so wide that every difficult thing in your life, God doesn't let it destroy you. And in fact, he goes so far to make every hard thing and make those things serve you. He makes your enemies make you better. We are more than conquerors because God defeats our enemies and makes them serve his purpose for our good. You remember Psalm 23? It's read at a lot of funerals. I think some people have been studying Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You see, we don't have to walk through the valley of death. We only walk through its shadow because God sent his son to defeat death for us. And so if our greatest enemy, the greatest evil, the greatest threat to us has been vanquished, well then, well then I can walk through the shadow of death and not be afraid because death itself is gone. And walking through the shadow is still scary, right? Well, you ever go outside in the middle of the night to get your trash cans, it's scary. You hear a noise, it's scary. Shadows are scary, but shadows can't hurt you. They're scary. Sometimes they're hard. Sometimes you want to run like a little girl back to the front porch. Sorry, girls. Run like a little boy back to the front porch. But they can't hurt you. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is this very obscure story where Elijah and Elisha are are doing something, and and they're in this house, and they're being chased by this army. They look out the window, and they are surrounded by this enemy army. And Elisha is freaking out. He's like, we're done. We're going to die. We're doomed. It's over. God's abandoned us. And Elijah's just chill. He's like not worried at all. And Elisha's freaking out. And there's this moment where Elijah says, it's like he gets, he gets kind of frustrated with him. It seems like he's like, Lord, give him sight. Let him see. And in that moment, Elisha's eyes are open, and he sees that behind this army that's coming for them, are all of these angelic army surrounding them. And it's like God is saying, look, sometimes you just can't see. Yeah, there's danger, there's scary things in your life, there are hard things in your life, but you can't see that I got them surrounded. That I won't let them take you. And that I'll use them for your good. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how when we're kids, Sometimes we're on a playground and, you know, kids start getting rough and they start pushing each other and start fighting. 
start calling each other names. And if they get to a point where we're kind of at a stalemate, right, what do they do? Well, I'll get my daddy. Oh, yeah, well, my daddy's bigger. I'll get him. And I was thinking about that and thinking about ain't no one bigger than my daddy. There's no one bigger than my, our father. And so whatever enemy, whatever bully, whatever threat comes in our life, we know that our Father always has our back, that he always comes running to the rescue, and that there's no fight he can't win. And think about how frustrating, think of, this is hilarious to me, think about how frustrating it's got to be for the Satan and the powers of darkness. That it doesn't matter what they trick you with, it doesn't matter what destruction they can cause. It doesn't matter how hard they hit you or what they can conceive of or do. No matter what they come up with, God just uses their wickedness for good. They try to hit you and God just like uses it against them. How frustrating for them. How great for us. God's love lasts forever. Its depths know no end. It reaches to the highest court. It is wider than our suffering. Finally, the question, last question, how strong is his love? Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me make this one like really simple for us. We all wonder from time to time if it's possible for us to lose our salvation. Can I lose my salvation? It is a question that gets debated in theological circles. It is a question that gets asked in youth group as students are beginning to think through those things for the first time. It is a question that gets asked in Sunday school or small group or maybe even at a cookout at your house. But sometimes it's a question we ask not for the interesting academic debate, but it is a question we ask in the quiet place of our heart because sometimes, not a theological debate or academic exercise, it is a terrifying question we are scared to death to actually know the answer. Can I lose my salvation? I want to put verse 38 up on the screen and I want you to read it with me. All right? Do that. Read it with me. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's walk through that. Nothing in death or life can separate God's love from me. Angels or demons can't. Nothing in the present and nothing in the future can. Nothing above or below can. Right? That's somewhat encouraging. These other forces can't do it. But the real question we have isn't whether angels or demons might steal our salvation. The question is, can I mess it up? The question is, can I screw it up? Can I sin too much? Can I struggle too much? Can I doubt too much? Can I take too long to repent? Can I sin too big? Can I doubt too long? Can I somehow screw up my salvation? Well, listen to that last line. Nor anything else in all creation. Let me ask you a question. Are you a part of creation? Are you a part of creation? 
I don't think there is any like benevolent creatures that are outside of God's created order in here or ever, anywhere. So we are a part of creation. Nor anything else in all of creation, then not even you. That means not even you, not even your actions, not even your failures, not even your insecurities, not even your doubts can separate you from the love of Christ. Why is that? Because God loved you before you were born. He loved you when you were still very sinful. He loved you so much, he sent his son to pay the price for your wrongdoing. And he is committed to loving you until the day he makes you perfect and forevermore. <clears throat> Notice, he doesn't love you because you're good. He doesn't love you because you earned it. He doesn't love you because of anything you have done. He loves you because he's chosen to love you. He loves you because he loves you. Why do you love your children? Why do you love your spouse? Not because you have to, but because you choose to. Can you lose your salvation? Guys, honestly, it's a super silly question. It's a silly question because, of course, you can't. You can't lose something you never earned to begin with. No, the real question, the more interesting question, isn't can I lose my salvation? The interesting question is can God lose my salvation? Can God lose it? And the answer is never. It is a resounding no. Because on that cross 2,000 years ago, your sins, if you're, if you're in Christ, your sins, past, present, and future, were paid in full. Redemption in that moment was completely and fully accomplished. And at the moment you placed your faith in Christ, it was completely and fully applied to you. And it is yours forevermore. God, listen to this, God could no more take back your salvation than he could undo the suffering Jesus experienced on the cross. Because that's the only way he could do it. He would have to go back in time, rewind the clock, take Jesus off the cross in order to take your salvation from you. We cannot be separated from the love of God because Jesus was separated from the love of God on that cross 2,000 years ago. Remember what he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus treated as a criminal, Jesus treated as a sinner. He, in that moment, was separated, was cut off, was forsaken, was let go, so that no matter what happens in your life, God would never do that to you. Jesus was cut off so that you would never be cut off. He was cast away so that you would never be cast away, so that we could always stay safe and sound in in our Father's arms, and once he has you, he never lets go. So how long and how wide, how deep and how wide and how high and how strong is the love of God, you ask? Well, let's just say that it is longer and deeper and higher and wider and stronger than you could ever imagine or hope for and much more than you would ever actually need. And so when we say God loves you, boy, do we really mean it. Father, this morning we come, we come as a people who aren't deserving of love, a people who have forsaken and betrayed and messed up every chance given to us, and yet it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the highest courts have said innocent, not guilty, righteous, justified child of God, 
forever. The highest courts have declared us, whom God has made us, through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. And so if we have believed in Jesus, we are secure and unmoving away from your love. But God, we know that there are people in this room right now who these incredible, encouraging truths are not true of them this morning. We know that because not everyone in this room has placed their faith in Christ, asked for forgiveness of their sin, and made Jesus the king of their life. And for them, all these great, encouraging, hopeful things aren't true. For them, the sufferings in their life are just sufferings with no purpose. For them, the evil one can have his way with them. Throw punches that aren't turned for good. But they don't know the love of God. They don't experience the love of God. Father, for those in this room that that is true of right now, would you make it abundantly clear in their heart? They are not yours. But, but if they would turn their eyes and their heart in faith, if they would turn and believe and cling to Jesus, then all of those things we've just said would now become true of them. Give them the courage and the strength to do the scariest but and bravest and most wonderful thing they could ever do, and that is to come and place their faith in Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, as we sing this song, I'm going to stand right down here. Man, just come walk up and say, Brent, I need to think through this. I want to talk about this. I want to figure this out. I don't know. I just want what you talk about. If you're, here, if you're here this morning and you would say, Brent, I believe, but I struggle and I doubt and I feel like sometimes God's abandoning me or that I've outsinned his love. I feel like I could lose my salvation and I struggle with the insecurity and fear of that. Maybe, maybe you should come forward and let me pray over you. Maybe you just need to come and, and confess that and own that fear. And God won't go, how could you doubt? Are you crazy? He'll, instead he'll say, it's okay, I got you. I got you. You're once in my hand, I never let go. If you're here this morning, you need to be encouraged. You're safe and secure. Come, let me pray with you. If you're here this morning, if you've got anything going on in your life, you need to be prayed for. You need to be encouraged. I'm here. God, give us the strength to respond the way we need. Even if that just means standing up and singing with all of our might about the amazing love of God. Give us the strength, Father. In Christ's name we pray all people said. Stand together.